It's Wednesday, December 30th, and this is our evening prayer. Ecclesiastes 3.11 God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity into man's heart, yet so that man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. It was May 2004, one week away from my college graduation. I was in the little town of Sackets Harbor, New York, enjoying a pre-graduation break with my closest friends. What freedom of that moment. Four years work complete and infinite possibilities ahead. But I was not carefree. At about 9 p.m., I put on my running shoes and took off down the softly crumbled asphalt road that ran along the Lake Ontario shore. Houses soon passed away, and I was alone in a serene place. I could smell the rich black soil and the soft spindly grass that grew in it. A cool lake breeze poured over me and lifted me. I ran on. I had to run that night. Though my studies were complete, the race was not yet done. The last semester had been my toughest at Yale. Instead of running on for the joy of learning, as I had during most of college, this final stretch reduced me to a doer. I used all my knowledge and strength, and it seemed all my heart particularly disappointing had been my senior essay, upon which I had pinned high hopes. I failed to achieve the vision I had for it, and the end product was mediocre. The result, the grade, would come in a few days. I feared it. I wanted to lose myself running out by the lake that night, to be free from the fear of failure, to work out all the confused emotions that had been pulling me down like an anchor. The sound of my feet on the road gave rhythm to the quiet countryside. Eventually, I made a long loop and ended up back at the house. I wasn't in the best running condition, but that night I knew I had to keep going. I went for a second loop. I heard nothing but my own footsteps along the dark path. I thought nothing felt nothing. It wasn't just my senior essay. For years, I'd hoped to graduate summa cum laude, the top 5% of my class. I knew I was close, and even one bad grade would sink me, and I was sure my essay advisor could justify a B or worse if he wanted to. He was a graduate school professor, and we had never struck up a good relationship. I just didn't trust him. I didn't trust myself. If I failed, I deserved it. I finished my second loop. As I passed the house, I could see the silhouettes of my friends enjoying a good time inside. If any of them struggled like this, I didn't see it. Why? Why did I have to strive for this performance, to have to race until the very end? Only one of my friends would graduate with a higher GPA than mine, and he was a true genius for whom success was easy. The others were also smart and accomplished, but I didn't know of any who strove this way. What was I after? I was pursuing something deeply compelling to me, something hard to catch. Secretly, I liked the fact that it was there, lingering just beyond my grasp, yet close enough that I could almost touch it. Every course at school was an opportunity to pursue it, and I embraced every one of those opportunities, nothing compared with the feeling of writing a great paper or mastering the topics I studied. Most of the time, especially at the beginning, I performed to fuel the pursuit rather than the other way around. Yet somehow, I had begun to crave achievement to validate the efforts and sacrifices I had made. How did this happen? 
so close now to the finish line. Why did winning matter so much? Two loops were not enough. I threw off the fleece I'd been wearing and began a third. My skin cooled in the night air, even while my blood grew warmer from the exertion. Together, these sensations produced an alive numbness. I felt powerful, invincible, yet so light and insignificant that the breeze might just pick me up and carry me away. Not lessening my pace, I finished the third loop and turned to the other part of town. I ran by rows of beautiful old houses and then, heading away from the lake down a country road that took me through the fields and past farmhouses and dogs barking in the darkness. I did not feel my legs. I did not tell them what to do. They just kept going, mile after mile in the darkness. Sometime around then, I realized that my run was both a question and an answer. It was a chase after the power that I wanted to fill my life, but also an expression of that power. Though I could never catch it, the more I ran, the more it built up within me. There was a lightness and grace in my physical effort and a complete purity of mind. My soul felt as free as a bird in flight. Maybe the force I sought, the force that compelled me that night and through all those years, was God himself. Maybe it was he who was behind the striving, he who set the goal and drove me to it, and yet he himself who was the goal. He was the excellent paper, the light foot, the A grade, the endless spirit. I slowed slightly as I turned around and came back into town. Not accustomed to two-hour runs, I felt a deep exhaustion saturate every part of my body. With it came a profound satisfaction and peace that I could not express. I no longer felt the need to run without stopping. It was okay that I had come to the end of myself. I had touched incredible power that evening. In fact, it felt like the remains of it still flowed through my veins, keeping me warm in the cool night air. I did not fear its presence, nor did I fear its departure. I knew that even though I yielded to weakness, that power would always be with me ready to emerge in marvelous ways. Down to, earth, down to earth and back on campus a few days later, I received an A- minus on my senior essay, and soon after that, I graduated summa cum laude by the slimmest of margins. The goal, now firmly in hand, felt lighter than I expected. It had given me everything I hoped it would. I consumed its glory with great joy, and yet as soon as I did, I began to feel lighter myself. An emptiness filled me. It comforted me, but it was an emptiness nonetheless, and I knew that it could not sustain me. As I looked to the road ahead, the familiar call of restless longing started to return. I was 16 years old when I first got the chance to fly. I'd taken up pole vaulting my freshman year and quickly excelled at it, Although I'd been an athlete most of my life, this was the first sport I was good at. Two of my best friends vaulted with me, and I can remember many bright spring afternoons running down to the track and vaulting for hours. And I loved it, to plant the pole just right, transition my momentum to vertical, and then to turn and let go of the pole while still rising upwards with my feet to the sky. It was awesome. And if I cleared the bar, the descent was just as wonderful. I seemed to float for minutes before hitting the mat. 
By my sophomore year, I was regularly winning the vault at track meets. By the end of the season, I was poised to break my high school record of 13-5. Being good at the vault somehow made it important that I do my best. I could win points for my team. I could be a champion. And every time I took off down the runway, the sky was the limit to how high I could go. I always wanted to fly higher, and that season was one of continually flying higher. I hoped to vault 14 feet before it was over. I remember the day of the region meet. It was a Saturday in April, and I was sitting downstairs in my house before heading over. As I thought about what lay before me, I had an unusual sense of peace, even joy. I knew I'd soon be going out to do what I loved on a beautiful day, that I would win the meet in front of hundreds of spectators, and that I had a good chance of breaking my school record. I was not nervous or afraid. I decided to thank God for what he'd done for me with vaulting and to ask his help for that day. Let me break the record, I prayed. Let me get 13-6 today. Then, very simply, God spoke to me. Go for 14 feet today, he said. Go for it. This was as clear as I'd ever heard his voice. I didn't say anything in response. I just got up and went to the meet. 14 feet was a symbolic height. Not only was it a height generally considered to distinguish great high school vaulters from merely good ones, but it was a secret goal I had dreamt of achieving all season. Before God spoke to me that day, I'd begun to back off this goal in case it didn't happen. I began to focus on 13-6, the minimum height that would give me the new record, a goal I could achieve without fearing failure. But that voice brought me an unexpected joyful confidence. I stopped thinking about records and heights. I just felt that all limits on my desire to fly higher were suddenly gone. I arrived at the meet, and it was a beautiful day. The sun was shining. There were hundreds of people and lots of activity. I had to wait for hours for most of the vaulters to finish before I began. By the time I took my first jump at 12 feet, most of the competitors had already gone out. At 12-6, I was the last one, the region champion. At 13 feet, I was just getting my rhythm. Then the bar was raised to 13-6, a new school record. Yet I didn't think much of it and flew over the bar like any other vault. I took a short rest and then looked back as the bar was raised to the height I'd been after all season, 14 feet. The bar resting that high off the ground looked different than it ever had before. It looked like a place I wanted to go. I found my place on the runway hoisted the pole, and took off, only to kick the bar off with my feet at the first attempt. Not high enough. By this time, they had announced my record on the loudspeaker, and a crowd of spectators gathered around to see if I could go even higher. Returning to my place on the runway, I paused. Suddenly, I was alone in the midst of the crowd. The afternoon sun was low in the sky, and the air was cool. I felt a slight tailwind on my back. It seemed to whisper, go for it. Without thinking, I lifted the pole and began to run. I was fast and light as a feather, my feet barely touching the ground. I was already flying. I planted, turned my legs towards the sky, and sailed over the bar. The fall to earth felt infinite. Years later, I was running again, this time across my college campus at night. I had just left a prayer meeting with my friends, but somehow that evening, something was off. Something was heavy and mechanical in the prayers we offered. 
I knew there was more. I knew I had to get out, so I excused myself. Once outside, I started to sprint across a dark and empty campus. Every step seemed to cry, Oh God, are you hiding from me? Do you think I won't come after you? I know you're there, and I will find you. There was no question in my mind where those prayerful fighting steps would lead. Soon I reached the eight-foot stone wall that was my target. I jumped up to grab the ledge and threw myself onto the other side. I landed on soft grass in a place with no lights and no people. All I could see were endless rows of gravestones and thousands of shadows. Alone at last, I ventured into the ancient cemetery that had often been the setting of my nighttime prayers. I was quiet for a few minutes, and then, So where are you, and what do you want? I'm here. You called me out here, and here I am, so let's do this. I couldn't say that in the prayer meeting. Indeed, I often went to the cemetery at night so I could voice the prayers no one else needed to hear. The prayers that pushed the limits of reverence and that were too loud for my own dorm room. Was I angry with God? No. Had he wronged me? No. All this emotion came from the simple recognition that he was God and he had called me to know him. He was out there somewhere and every day of my life I claimed that he had initiated a relationship with me. So where was he? I paced the narrow pathways that cut among the tombstones. The cemetery was quiet and peaceful compared with the city outside its walls. It was filled with trees and green grass and countless old graves, some older than our country, some belonging to famous citizens from ages past. Many of the tombstones were grand pillars reaching higher than a house. Others were ornately decorated monuments with cherubs or flowers carved into the stone. So many of the older markers had eroded with the passing years, their granite and sandstone facades now illegible. Charged to forever speak the names and importance of the dead into this world, they now stood as silent monuments to the briefness of human life and the anonymity of death. Other graves explicitly committed their dead into God's hands. Even the entrance to the cemetery proclaimed, The dead shall be raised. All these reminders of human insufficiency and God's infinite power made a good setting for my quest to encounter my Creator. That night I found myself at the foot of a tombstone with a 15-foot-tall granite cross. And at its base, a stone angel, taller than I, stood, head bowed, mourning the deceased. I stood at the corner of this gigantic monument and broke the silence again. Author of life and all the things that humans cannot do, why do you reach out to touch us and yet hide the life you promised to give? I have felt your hand carry me this far, but I cannot see you. You are always calling and I hear your voice in the slightest places. So why are you silent tonight? Is it for myself that I've come to pull myself up? I hope not. We both know that I cannot draw any nearer to you by standing on the graves of dead men. All my works are as dead as these bones. My heart is cold as this stone. Yet there is a life and a fire that burns in my soul. I have not placed it there. It is foreign to me, and I cannot stop searching until I find its source. But who am I kidding? I know where this life has come from. I know who has done it. You have done it, and I know who you are. I know your name. 
Don't forget that you have made yourself known to me. You started this, not me. You have come to me with a promise of life beyond this life. So why do I walk among the dead? Why am I mostly dead myself? Why do I go around blind and deaf, not feeling, not thinking, and knowing nothing? I know so little. My life is so small. I have no power to be bigger than the smallest thing in the universe. But you make outrageous claims. You place within me a life that I know is not my own. It's a power that can reach across space and time. But it is as thin as a strand of thread that shatters when I reach it, reach out to touch it. The life you give brings more questions than answers. After all this time of seeking you, I still know so little about you. Did you expect one lifetime would be enough for me to truly know you? Is one mile enough for us to walk together? I tire of my pathetic life. I tire of searching for you and my own strength. One life and all my efforts will leave me no closer to you than when I began. And so on. I provoked him with every truth he put inside my soul. I charged him to meet me and to do all he had promised. I screamed out a confession of his vastness and my insignificance. And in all of this, I scoffed at the absurdity of his reaching down to touch me. But he had touched me. My mind and body and spirit knew it through and through. That's why I raved on like this, because the absurd was true. And because I needed more, more of him. But none of my striving or prayers could lift me to touch him. As the night wore on, I tired. My fighting prayers softened and turned to things. More statements than requests, these prayers pierced the darkness with such authority that I knew they were not my own. I was speaking life. Having emptied myself, I felt hollow and brittle, yet at the same time profoundly full. The God I had taunted and cried out for was there in my midst, breathing life into my body and speaking through me. He was closer than I could ever have imagined, on all sides, within. After some time, there was nothing left to say. Finally, silence. I exhaled, and as I stepped down from the gravestone to leave, he lifted me. The desert was 110 degrees, and the mid-afternoon sun punished me thoroughly for coming to that place. I trudged on with my pack and diminishing supply of water to a dry ravine that ran down from the mountain before me. I scrambled up a thousand feet of boulders the size of cars, pausing for an hour in the shade to speed the sun's descent. Some things lived there, but it was no place for humans. Heat emanated from above and below. The dry air sucked away all moisture, and the tilted hillside of rocks and scrub was the only path forward. Finally, I turned straight up the mountain and reached its summit. Looking below, I saw an endless area of scorched earth destined to bake in the oven of the Mojave Desert day in and day out. But not me. This was to be my only night in the desert. There on the mountaintop, I pitched my tent between a boulder and a tree and awaited nightfall. I was dehydrated, dirty, and hungry, not to mention poked by plenty of cactus spines. But my water was short and my appetite gone, so there was little comfort beside the chance to stop walking for a while. Sunset illuminated the barren plains and mountains with a hundred shades of fire. 
as many shades of blue advance from the dark side of the sky to take their place. Eventually all faded to black and the desert became a land of indistinguishable shadows. There was no moon. The air was still. I went to sleep. An hour later I woke to the sound of my tent shaking in the wind. The wind seemed unusually strong. At times it bent and shook the whole structure of my shelter. I huddled there hoping for rest to come, but the noise combined with my other discomforts made sleep impossible. After another hour, the wind was even stronger and more insistent. I peered out of the tent, and there facing me across the mountaintop was the moon just rising. A huge, burning, blazing orange sphere that seemed to call forth ever greater gusts of wind. I stepped out into the night and went about staking down my tent more securely. The air had finally become cool, and there was a certain tranquility despite the strong current that coursed ceaselessly over the mountain. Having secured the tent, I climbed onto a large boulder that stood high above where I had camped. The moon was amazing. It shimmered in the night sky and cast light like a torch's flame, deep and powerful. I couldn't help thinking that this was a reflection of the same light that had seared me earlier. As I faced the moon, the wind poured around me from behind like a mighty river. I don't know where it came from or how it persisted so long, but it was strong enough to nearly take me off my feet in that exposed place. As I stood shirtless and exhausted in the desert night, it occurred to me that God must be there. I lifted my arms to feel him, but all I felt was the wind and my weakness I lowered my arms and stood there, trying to keep my balance amidst the torrent. The moon rose and became brighter. I looked around on all sides and the desert started to brighten. Light and power continued their dance and I faded away to nothing at all. Not long after returning from the desert, I fasted for a few days. I used to fast when I was younger. But since I began working, I found that it just made me too weak to get things done. My responsibilities required more than fasting allowed me to give. And sure enough, going without food sapped my strength this time too. My work pace slowed to a steady march. My body became empty. I drank coffee in the afternoons to get through the day. The caffeine helped me meet my obligations, but the emptiness persisted. I'd learned fasting as a way to draw near to God and I'd felt close to him while fasting before. But the last few years had been ones of doing, which for some reason made it hard to approach him in simple ways like this. These were times in which strength and alertness mattered, when I bet my future on learning to do things well, and when God's most welcome manifestation was the inspiration to do better. I gave what I had, and in return I started to fill myself with all sorts of capabilities I sought strength and influence to be excellent and for it to matter and accumulated all these things without a second thought because I thought excellence could draw me near to God. Yet somehow I felt far, full of things that mattered little and lacking those that mattered much. What went wrong? Had I misdirected my efforts? I didn't know the answer to those questions, but they hardly seemed to matter anyway. What did matter was that maybe this time, somehow, I could find him again. Maybe he'd be there if I just took a step toward him. So I came home one evening and took a walk in my neighborhood. 
The streets were dark and the night was quiet and peaceful. I walked on in silence for a long time. Indeed, I had prayed very little during my fast and had lived most of my days as normal, with the exception of being unusually weak and slow. Walking that evening soothed my restlessness, and there was a strange purity in giving energy without receiving it. Each step enhanced the hollowness within me and gave me greater clarity of mind. Each footfall felt lighter than the one before. What could I say? That question pulsed in my mind with every pace. What could I offer that would mean anything to him? What could I confess or change to make myself suitable? What could I say to entice him closer than he already was? What could I ask for that would be greater than this very moment? The answer became loud and inescapable. Nothing, nothing, nothing. What did I need? Not a thing in the world. I walked on in hopes of preserving the ethereal bliss of that moment, but the weakness that had taken me to such a height of consciousness soon brought me back down to earth. I was tired. I turned for home. Along the way, I thought of all I had given up for just a momentary glimpse of God's infinite power. I considered how little I had done during my fast, but take this walk, and I wondered if in all of this I had actually drawn near to him. What had I gained? Why had I done this? And then it struck me. I spoke aloud. I fast to feel my own weakness so that I can feel God's strength. And that was enough. But sometimes weakness shows up when you haven't sought it. When I applied to business school after a couple years of working, weakness found me. Most people at my firm went to business school and none of them had trouble getting into the very best schools. So it was a matter of routine to get my application in order and await admission. But I got busy and I put off my application. I finally signed up for the latest possible date for the test, the GMAT, and began studying one month before it began. To my surprise, I found the study guides full of detailed algebra I hadn't looked at for years. The result of my first practice test was poor, not good enough for the schools I needed to get into. No worries, I thought. I'll quickly get better. I didn't. My second and third and fourth practice tests, each taking hours to complete, showed little improvement. By by now, I had three weeks until the exam, and it was then that the thought first occurred to me. I might fail. The notion was such a different reality that I could barely comprehend it. And when I did, it set off a chain reaction of crippling fear and doubt. If I do poorly, I may not get into a good school. And if that happens, it will be a step backwards in my life accomplishments, which will cast doubt on everything I've done before. If that happens, I won't be unique or smart. I'll be weak. I'll be ruined. My anxiety only grew in the coming weeks. I found myself studying at night after 12-hour days and on the weekends to the point of exhaustion. I awoke each day to thoughts of fractional exponents and failure. I prayed that God would help me, but I carried that that burden alone through one miserable day after the next. As the test neared, I began to consider more seriously the possibility that God would take this from me. That after years of success, he would deal me the humbling blow I always knew he was capable of. But I steeled myself and said that even if if he was going to bring failure, 
I would nevertheless strive for success. It was impossible to seek anything less. The day came. I awoke numb, trusting only because I had to. I went through the motions of preparing for the test, but a mounting tension between strength and weakness filled all thoughts and emotions. What could I do? How could I ever be rid of this debilitating weakness, this terminal disease? How could I give myself what I needed, what was right there in front of me? And yet so far away, the questions pounded in my head. Then suddenly, in my heart, there was a strange impulse to trust God, to give up the fight. Success and failure momentarily disappeared from my vocabulary. I fell to my knees and lifted my hands up to him in a perfect image of surrender. But even that posture pretended strength I didn't have. So I dropped my arms and slouched over, weak, ruined. God, I can't do this. Tears came, ungraceful sobs. I have only one chance, only one. It's a good thing I'm trying to do. Anger, and you would take it from me. You set me up. You brought me here and left me with nothing to give. I paused and then spoke. God, you have brought me here, and you and I both know that I never had the strength to do it. I never had the strength to do any of those things I did. I never had it. That thought sank in. Weakness overwhelmed me and tore backward into everything I ever did, all my life's accomplishments, destroying them, redefining them. Freedom. I don't know what you'll do today, but I have only one chance at this, and all I know is to do my best. I did better than I expected on the exam, better than the average of the best schools, Somehow strength emerged from weakness that day. I'd been told it worked that way, but for some reason I wasn't eager to accept weakness in the face of this trial. Though I loved the emptiness of exertion, the purity of mind and detachment from outcomes that it brought, somehow I still craved the affirming embrace of success. The longer I worked and the more I se- the longer I worked, the more I seemed to need it. Unsure what to conclude from my brush with failure, I told myself I would seek strength, and if weakness followed me on its own, so be it. I have found that everything I do is marred by weakness. It defines me, grounds me. Minutes after breaking my school record in the pole vault at 14 feet, I crashed to the ground in front of the same crowd that had cheered my previous flight. The long day of vaulting had sapped my strength and speed, which I discovered at the peak of my next vault when my momentum ran out and I fell back to the runway. I might fly for a moment, but gravity will catch up with me. It will pull me down to the ground with irresistible force. It's a nasty terminal illness that I will never escape, no matter how long I run or how many successes I have. But there is a cure to this disease. I have felt it. All the times I was strong or good, or when I was caught up in power I did not control, or when I ran so far that my steps mingled with the wind and my body became hollow and my life and effort and meaning yielded to the vast power that filled the space around me. These were signs of a remedy for my devastating weakness. They were a taste of a cure that takes effect only after my disease runs its full course 
and I've come to the end of myself. Lord, you have put eternity into my heart. I wrestle with it, but I cannot prevail. I cannot comprehend what you have done from beginning to end. My struggle is doomed. Yet somehow eternity calls me back to you. You are the only one who can fill all that empty space. I don't have to. You have made a place for me in it. I will meet you there. Amen.